0: I actually gave a, the similar version of this talk back in 2018 to the Department of Medicine here, uh, prior to, to to me joining the faculty. So a lot of these things will be kind of repeated, but at the same time, um, you know, there's a different spin on it a, as I go through it. Um, so I have no disclosures. So I, I, again, you know, whenever I do a talk, usually it's been a, uh, for, for this, um, uh, you know, for the division, it's been more of case-based. But this... Uh, Is a little more science. And so I deemed it necessary to kind of have objectives. So what I want to convey today is, uh, you know, you guys to understand, uh, have a basic understanding of the microbiology and epidemiology of NTMs, more specifically obsessives. Okay. And this is, and we practice in Florida. So it's important that we understand what's going on here. Um, And we also have to understand the types of, 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 you know, the pathophysiologic conditions that they cause. So um, also I want to kind of, you know, Admin, you know, kind of discuss a little bit of some of the current understanding of both the immunological um, pathophysiology of these infections, uh, especially m some of the, you know, pharmacotherapeutic options, um, and what's kind of going in the pipeline. Um, and then, you know, from my perspective, and the most important thing is is the research. You know, I think it's important that we understand that it's not just, you know, just the, the clinical presentations of these patients, but as the fellows understand you know, it also has to do with what we what questions can we answer from seeing these patients, and how can we improve their outcomes in the future? Whether that be from pharma ther- pharmacotherapeutics, whether that be from epidemiology and understanding more about you know where this thing is located, um, but then finally, uh, uh, you know, also the the immune system and what's happening uh, and how we're how our bodies are trying to combat it. So I, I'm starting this off with a quote. So Kevin Fenley. Is 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 a you know former colleague of mine at the University of Florida, and he's up at the NIH right now. He's clinical faculty. Works for in, in Ken Olivier's group at um in the pulmonary section at the NIH, and so Kevin's been studying NTMs now for probably about a quarter century, and so you know one day he and I are having coffee uh, outside of the Emerging Pathogens Institute, and we're talking, and you know I said you know I've been seeing a lot of obsesses here in Florida since I got here. From California, you know, which was different from what we, you know, saw there. You know, what's going on with that? He's and I said, you know, and what do you think? And he says, let me tell you something. Not and he, and he quoted this. Not that I would want the choice, but if you asked me whether I would want XDR TB or mycobacterium abscessus infection, I would pick the former. And I kind of looked at him, kind of funny, and I said, I, I said, Ken, are you serious? And he says, absolutely. And then he goes on, you know, about all these other patients that he's seeing at UF and all the problems that they're having, and how many new cases he's seen. And, and we thought that was kind of interesting. So, but let's get into it. But before we go into the into what's going on and the science, I think it's important that, you know, again, this is still kind of a clinical audience. And so, deem it necessary to go through two brief cases. And it show and these cases will show you that, you know, there'll, there'll be some good outcomes and then some not good outcomes. So case one is a 62-year-old engineer with a history of interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, who's now status post-bilateral pulmonary transplantation in January of 2017. Um, So he had been hospitalized at Shands this entire time, okay? Um, In June of 2017, he had a worsening productive cough, chills, and nodules on chest X-ray. Now he has not left this room. Again, very important. So was, um, they bronched him and his BAL demonstrated normal flora and he was treated for aspiration pneumonia with vancomycin and sethpine for 10 days. But the productive cough continued and got worse. So um, they repeated the BAL um, and they sent fungal and AFB as long, along with um, uh, Legionella uh, uh, cultures. So his past medical history, he's got interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, which was idiopathic in origin. Um, his allergies are to sulfa. His meds are mycophenolate, tacro- tacrolimus, valganciclovir, voriconazole. His family medical history is really not contributory. Social history is originally from Atlanta, Georgia. He's a software engineer. And he's married with two daughters. He has no pets travel. Um, has only really been around the southeastern and southwestern U.S. So his hospital course is prolonged. By the time I saw him, um, he had been hospitalized for eight months. He had been on and off ECMO. During this time, he had adrenal insufficiency, uh, pulmonary aspergillosis. Um, he was chronically on the vent. Um, and he had diaphragmatic paralysis uh, and new status post-diaphragmatic pacemaker since March of 2017. That was probably a result of the surgery, the original surgery. So on physical exam, he was febrile to 38.7 Celsius. He was tacking away at 106. Of course, his respiratory was controlled at 16. Blood pressure was satisfactory. Uh, His vent settings, he was on pressure support, pressure at 16, PIPA 7, FIO2 of 55%. So the generally ill-appearing man, he's got a trach. He's got dry mucosa um, that I could see in his mouth. Um, He's using his accessory muscles slightly. Uh, He's got, coarse course, breast cells bilaterally, sinus tachycardia, um, and he's got some small superficial ulcers. along the mid-axillary line bilaterally. So the, the culture went out to the National Jewish Hospital Mycobacteriology Lab, and it grew mycobacterium abscesses, subspecies abscesses. Uh, the main probe was uh, positive for ERM41 gene. We'll get to that later. Um, and uh, the RRL gene was not present, nor was the uh, RRS gene. So the MIPs, of course, were done by broth dilution. And um, the sensitivity pattern was as follows. Was sensitive to tigacycline, amikacin, clorithromycin, and azithromycin, and clofazamine, as well as clofazamine, amikacin uh, combination. It was intermediate to imipenem imipenemsilostatin, and right out resistant to uh, clav, tobramycin, ciprofloxacin, doxycycline, moxifloxacin. Cotrimoxazole, which is Bactrim, and Linazole. So his original regimen was clarithromycin, inhaled amikacin, not liposomal at the time, and imipenempsilostatin. So this is why therapeutic drug monitoring is important. Uh, we obtained imipenempsilostatin levels, um, and I adjusted imipenempsilostatin to continuous infusion while he was in the hospital, um, which is actually not difficult to do uh, you just have to have, you know, pharmacy work closely with you. Uh, so, I also added amicacin IV. Uh, I switched the quirthromycin and azithromycin, and I started tigacycline Q24 and was giving him low-dose clonazepam. And the reason for the clonazepam is is to, you know, quell any kind of emesis that, that he has. Um, so, we were considering other antibiotics such as bedacolin and clofazamine. Um, unfortunately for him, uh, he actually um, you know succumbed to the disease um, and ended up having a cardiopulmonary arrest uh, and in, in the face of having pretty severe mycobacterial disease. And it was interesting to note that the lesions that were on that mid um, axillary line bilaterally uh, were from the, uh, the original surgery, and the mycobacterial abscesses had disseminated there. So um, again, you know, it had gotten into the bloodstream. Um, and 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 they, nobody thought about this until later, uh, and and he died of disseminated mycobacterium abscessus disease. Case two um, is a fifty-four year old man um, with history of end um, stage renal disease from polycystic kidney. He'd been on peritoneal dialysis for two years, for five years rather. Uh, he had two previous PD catheter infections, uh, one with E. coli and one with Proteus vulgaris, and in late 2016 he came, he presented with. Subjective fevers, chills, uh, and a 10 kilogram weight loss, which had occurred over a six month period. Um, he noticed some induration uh, surrounding the catheter PD site, but it was it, it was it was minimal, and so he didn't really think much of it. So in February of 20, 2017, uh, they did a biopsy of the of the PD catheter uh, stoma site, and they grew Mycobacterium abscessus subspecies. Obsesses. So uh, they gave him amikacin. Uh, through the peritoneal dialysis catheter azithromycin by mouth and sephoxytin through the pd catheter for six to twelve months now i have this boat there on the right and that is a genou. so it's a type of sailboat and this is what he lives on uh he he sails around the caribbean and uh, enjoys the time with him and his wife and he actually does peritoneal dialysis on the boat which is impressive (coughs) anyway um, so here, are his results uh, of the Mycobacterium abscessus that was um, that that grew out, and so um, uh, he actually was admitted to Shands uh, from the from the VA at my behest, so that we can actually see what was going on with his sensitivity pattern, but also to probably exchange the catheter um, and 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 you know treat him a different way. So as you can see there. Um, the pattern was kind of similar to the first patient, right? So it was susceptible to amikacin. Itstermycin uh, was susceptible. The cefepime and cefetaxime were resistant. The MIC to, to um, cefoxetin was, um, was intermediate. Ceftriaxone, of course, resistant. Cipro-resistant. Chlorofermycin susceptible. Um, the clofazamine was was susceptible. Doxy-resistant. Gent-resistant. Imipenem intermediate. Canamycin susceptible. The nasalid resistant minocycline and moxie resistant, TIGI t- susceptible, and resistant even to tobramycin and uh, Bactrim. So we kind of decided on, and I used to see my handwriting there on the right. So what we did was, is that, you know, made him come into shans um, from the VA, uh, and we removed his PD catheter in January 2018. And I talked to my nephrology colleagues, and we put him on IHD. And I think that that was critical because it allowed him time to heal. And so but but again, he continued to grow the obsessus uh, from that that site. And we actually sent the specimen, uh, you know, piece of the pathologic specimen to our our microbiologic colleagues who ended up um, detecting biofilms using SEM, which is kind of cool. Anyway, so we gave him amicacin IV, azithromycin, meropenem um, on a continuous infusion um, and tigecycline. Um, And so, again, we gave him dose clonazepam, and I treated him for a 12- to 18-month course. So not only is he improving now after replacement of the PD catheter, but we actually bridged him to get a solid organ transplant for his kidney. And he has been, from what my colleagues tell me at UF and the VA, very successful. So this – he survived the M. abscessus infection. So are there any questions thus far? Okay. So non-tuberculous mycobacteria. So everybody throws NTM around. So what are they? So, you know, these are pathogens that are that are millions and millions of years old, almost the order of a billion years. Um, and they're really environmental pathogens, right? So, and they're ubiquitous in the environment. And, you know, several hundred thousand years ago, uh, a group of them kind of started to in, invade the bodies of animals. And this grew into... The two groups we know of as mycobacterium leprae, and then the mycobacterium tuberculosis complex group. However, the rest of them stayed in the soil and the water, um, you know, as their as their their kin had in the past. So, we can break them down into two real big groups: uh, rapidly growing mycobacteria and slow gro- growing mycobacteria. So, um, you know, rapidly growing mycobacteria. Uh, you know, they really grow around three to seven days. And that has to do with their generation time of, you know, undergoing, um, you know, mitosis anywhere from, you know, six to 12 to 18 hours. Uh, and the and the organisms that are in there are the Mycobacterium cessus complex, Mycobacterium cheloniae and fortuitum. Um, Slow-growing mycobacteria, cultures that grow anywhere from two to eight weeks. And that's because their mitosis time uh, their time to mitosis rather is anywhere from 24 to 60 hours, and that's why it takes them so long to grow. And um, with them, the Mycobacterium avium complex, which there are six big um, organisms that are in that complex. Mycobacterium xenopi, which we see a lot more in in the northern um, uh, latitudes of this hemisphere. Mycobacterium homofilum, uh, Marinum kansasii, and even Gordoni, which for the most part is a um, Um, uh, a contaminant that we see in the lab, but can infect certain HIV patients. So this is a map from, um, you know, Becky Prevost's group at the NIH, uh, and uh, this was in 2012. It shows that, um, you know, where the incidents of cases uh, were documented based on CMS. Uh, There are sporadic cases that that are in California, um, some that are in Louisiana, uh, and some of the major metropolitan centers in the Northeast. But the real bulk of the cases are in Florida and Hawaii. Um, and that's very interesting. So, um, but again, like I said, mycobacteria, uh, Rebellion mycobacteria, the main subspecies of obsessus um, are abscessus itself, Boletii, and Massilians. Um, so, again, they're commensal organisms of soil and water, like I've seen, and they're commonly found in water pipes and water sources. So um, all individuals are exposed during their lifetime, right? Uh, you know, here in Florida, and the reason, you know, is, is has to do with, with you know municipal water supplies, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but the disease usually occurs in patients who have intrinsic pulmonary disease, those who are severe severely immunocompromised, those who have primary uh, primary uh, prior, prior cavitary disease such as tuberculosis or you know a bad staph aureus pneumonia um and there's also the selected body phenotype and what do i mean by that so we're talking about this quote unquote lady windermere syndrome which we see the, most often occurs in caucasians and 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 um, in east Asians and they're usually women and they're usually thin and they're usually in their uh, you know 50s to 60s to 70s um, now rarely do the other uh, rapidly growing mycobacteria cause pulmonary infection but it can but they can occur but abscesses is the king in terms of um, it causing, a, you know, pulmonary infection. Um, there's also the, you know, the, the, um, what can occur in terms of integumental puncture, uh, which is usually self-resolving, but in these groups that, that, you know, that are above, um, you know, you will definitely see patients, uh, you know, have standing infection, and they require antibiotic therapy because they're, they, you know, they, they really can't clear the infection. So, you know, let's go before we go into that, um, you know, we'll talk briefly about why this is happening. So, you know, in the water supply here in Florida, you know a lot of municipalities in the state, um, you know, where they get their water from, it's usually chlorine gas that is added as the agent um, uh, to make the water potable, right? And so, what does that do? So that decreases the other the other bacteria that mycobacteria usually, have to compete with for resources. But they also, uh, you know, eliminate organisms which are predators of mycobacteria, right? Things like amoeba and dictostelium in these things. And so what happens is, is that, you know, the mycobacteria survive and then they grow, they bloom in the water supply. That's usually why we see it. Um, but they like to, if they're not making a biofilm, they like to infect, uh, you know, eukaryotic cells. That includes us. And so what happens is, is that once phagocytosis occurs, whether that be dendritic cell, macrophage, lineage cells and whatnot, um, they go into what's called a smooth phenotype. So, you know, this uh, prevents the phagolysosome from actually, uh, you know, maturing and, you know, the different mechanisms to pour acid into there to dissolve the organism um, and other proteolysis. Uh, And again, usually it's one bacteria that's in there. And as you can see on the scanning electron micrograph, this ETZ, this um, electron translucent zone, this shows that the organism is kind of, um, you know, taking control of the phagolysosome and is able to do what it wants in there. Um, and it kind of forms this almost like a capsule um, um, there. Uh, and again, this again prevents the phagolysosome from doing its its job. Whether that's, you know, related to cyclic AMP and other mechanisms. Uh, you know, there's some hypotheses to that, but hasn't really been flushed out. Uh, but again, you know, once the, micro- once the macrophage has been overtaken, um, you know, uh, there's less apoptosis of those cells and direct destruction of them uh, by, uh, by the lymphocytes, including, you know, cytotoxic T cells, to do their job to, to kill these, these infected cells. And thus, they, they become a factory for these organisms to reproduce. And so when they want to start to reproduce, and the coast is, quote-unquote, clear, um, they undergo a rough phenotype. And so what happens is is that they break the phagolysosome. They start to um, uh, create this phagocytic cup, which you can demonstrate here by these arrows from from, Rue et al. in 2016. And you can see here that, um, you know, they start to uh, pop out, uh, bud off, or, quote-unquote, of the macrophage. Um, and then there's rapid, um, ab- uh, you know, active replication, and so then there's multiple daughter cells, um, and then they kind of, uh, eventually, lyse the macrophage, um, or what they'll do is is they'll actually cause the organ the the macrophage to undergo apoptosis or ferroptosis, um, and then uh, once in a while you'll actually see uh, the organisms coalescing together, and that's called cording, which is notorious. In in mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, but can be seen with some non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and this is the case. So the microbiology, we're going to continue with this. So again, they can persist in the environment um, inside of amoeba and their and their kin, um, both in trophozoites and in cysts. And so again, they can go from smooth to rough phenotype. And once it's in the rough phenotype, it's a pro-inflammatory kind of thing. Um, And there's this gene called SX4. Which is similar to Sx, SX Ex, one uh, and TB, and again this causes the phagolysosome to rupture. It's a type 7 secretion system, um, and again some gram positives have this as well as mycobacteria, uh, but this also causes increase in virulence, um, and both MAC and abscesses can do this, uh, and this again causes more um, more organisms to be released from these cells and thus to seek out other uh, macrophages cells linear macrophage lineage cells, um, and thus, um, you know, causes uh, other end cells to become infected. So, as I kind of said here, you know, wh- how do you get this? So, again, it's waterborne for the most part, um, and it's all in the municipal water system. Now, you, you might, you know, uh, the fellows will discuss with me, well, you know, Anthony, the patient also, you know, so it has well water. Well, well water turns out doesn't have a lot of mycobacteria in it, and the reason is, is because you know there's a lot more of these organisms to compete with for for resources and the predators are in there too so it really you know these things really grow in in you know in that environment but they don't grow as much as in the as in the municipal water so anytime you can aerosolize water we're talking about showers hot tubs ice machines yes even ice machines and of course soil so people who you know garden they, not only do they are they exposed to the soil, uh, but they're also spraying water usually, and it, with a, you know whether it's a mist on their on their the nozzle on their um, you know uh, hose um, sprayer on their hose, uh, you know people get infected, and so that's kind of a problem. Now, because of the fact that they really have lipid-rich membranes, you know, is there do they form these liposomes and thus is there increased aerosolization? Uh, that's probably true, um, because they can kind of h- hang out inside of a droplet of water in a liposome, and 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 then in, you know infect people that way, and then it just gets in. It's easier. So what happens when it gets inside of you? Well, this is this is TB here, but more than likely it's kind of similar. So one of the first things it does is it starts to set off certain signals that downregulate cilia production of um, epithelial cells lining the trachea and lining bronchi and bronchioles. And so there's different infection, there's infection of different cells as well, not just interstitial macrophages, but also dendritic cells and interestingly enough, goblet cells. And so again, less mucus is produced. And so you can't cough these things up. And this is all in direct uh, response for the organism to survive and kind of hang out. Once it gets inside the alveolar space, the, you know, the, the gambit is, is on. Um, You know, again, they can live inside of surfactant, as you can see here. Uh, Again, they can live inside of type one and type two pneumocytes um, and alveolar macrophages. But what's interesting is, is that they can also live inside of interstitial macrophages. And this is one of the things that I, I, you know, when we discuss therapeutics and we talk about inhaled liposomal amikacin, why I think that there is a problem with that is because We don't know if these uh, liposomes get inside of interstitial macrophages. And if that is a harbinger of, of, you know, for the physiology of the organism, well, then that's not doing much. So you have to do, you also have to administer other antibiotics to penetrate those cells. Now, one of the cells that's here, um, and it's not labeled, is very interesting. Um, And that is an innate T cell. Uh, And you're, you're probably saying to yourself, what? Well, we'll discuss that later. But I believe, and this is my hypothesis, is is that it is critical for the management and, um, you know, elimination of this organism in the lung. Um, And I think that it's a a big player, um, but really has not been shown that yet because no one has done the studies. So diagnostics usually with patients, the best labs are National Jewish Hospital in Denver and the University of Texas at Tyler. Both have mycobacteriology labs. Both are staffed with some of the best uh, and most knowledgeable physicians and scientists in the nation. That's what they study. Um, interestingly enough, it's a BSL-2 agent. So you can do this on a regular standard bench. You don't need TB precautions. Unfortunately, here in Florida, um, you know all these samples that turn out to be mycobacterial, um, if, uh, they end up going to the state anyway. And, and once TB is ruled out, uh, then um, then they'll send it off to either the CDC or one of these two hospitals, uh, as I mentioned here, uh, for um, identification. Now, what's interesting is, is that in July of 2017, you can actually, the FDA actually said that you could do mass spectrometry. Now, you know, that hasn't been rolled out nationwide because mass spec can be expensive, but it can differentiate all the different species of mycobacteria, and that's kind of cool. So, again, as we go to more of a molecular um, you know, biologic approach to 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 infectious diseases, mass spec could come into play a lot more. Um, but also, there's uh, a company out of Germany called Heind, and they've been making line probe assays for numerous years. So several years, and they've always been interested I- interested in mycobacteria, um, and they were, they've were been working on a line probe assay uh, for TB for years, which detects rifamycin and INH resistance. Besides telling you what the organism is, um, the, and it also works for some other antibiotics in TB, but now they've actually been doing this for NTMs as well, and they're using this throughout Europe and in some um, in some um, uh, facilities in the United States, including the National Jewish Hospital. So Mac uh, again, the, it can identify the three um, main species of Mac, even though there are six or more: uh, Chelonia and Fortuitum, and also um, Will tell you if, you know, not only is it Mycobacterium obsessus, but the three different subspecies, obsessus, boletii, and mesalliens. And then we'll give you the different genes of resistance in these organisms, where ERM is uh, uh, inducible macrolide resistance, RRL is, is frank macrolide resistance, and RRS is, is, is frank um, aminoglycoside resistance. And this is what it looks like. This is from my lab. Uh, We actually did this on on some specimens uh, from Shans back in in 2018, 2017, 2018. And you can see here that each of these indications kind of tells you what the different genes are that are there and will tell you what the organism is basically. And then you'll see here that there's, um, you know, ERM41 detection, RRL, and RRS. Which again will tell you whether or not there's resistance to some of these other uh, antibiotics. Any questions? Yeah, lecture. Hello. So. so far. Excellent. So, um, how do we get sensitivities to to this? Well, you really can't grow these organisms in a, in a, in a Kirby Bauer plate. Um, or, or other methods or, you know, e-tests and whatnot. It's really done by micro broth dilution. So what's that? So you take a 96 well plate and you put the organism, you know, uh, you know on a culture media. And then what you do is, is you slowly dilute, um, you know, the drug there. Um, and the, the, the microbacterial culture is the same concentration throughout the, the, the plate. And what this tells you is, is that this could, this tells you where the MIC could be. Um, and that's usually uh, noted where there's a clearing in that plate. However, if you can think about this, this is truly subjective. And it's based on the laboratory technologists, um, expert, you know, um, experience, uh, and, and also a little bit of of, you know, luck. And sometimes there are disagreements. And uh, this is, again, this is a very subjective method. So if you see that, you know, um, a susceptibility to a drug is, you know, intermediate, it might very well be resistant. Um, and so, again, that's why we really need a, you know, better methodology uh, to, to how we, you know, come up with these MICs in these, um, in these, in these organisms. So what are our therapeutic options for mycobacterium sessis? So usually the bedrock therapy is a macrolide, um, you know, IV acyclovir usually, and beta lactams, um, cefoxitin or ampicillin. is used. However, I can tell you that meropenem works just as well as imipenem, and is can be given much more easily continuous infusion outpatient, despite what some um, some of our suppliers say, and also it's it's much more um, you know stable from a about chemistry point of view. And there's also some, some data to suggest out of um, Robert Monoma's group from Case Western using dual beta-lactams. And, you know, some, some studies have shown that statin and ceftazidine or meropenem plus ceftaroline have been used, uh, you know, for, in combination with some of, these, some of these patients and have generated some success. And I can tell you that I've done this several times now um, you know, I still have some patients that I'm waiting on, <laughs> waiting on results to see because they have such long-term infections. But still, um, so there's a period of time where in, in MAC therapy, you usually do two to four months, see how they do, and then move forward. Well, with this, there's an induction phase of about you know eight to sixteen weeks. Uh, but I can tell you that you know I've had patients be on these antibiotics continuously. For almost two years, depending on on the location of the infection. Um, now, Masculiens um, really has a, a partially truncated erm forty one gene, so you can use macrolides. In um, inhaled amikacin is something that people have used, uh, including liposomal amikacin inhaled. But again, like I said, I don't know if that if that really penetrates the um, you know the interstitial macrophages, the pulmonary macrophages. And, and, and thus, that could be an issue. Uh, fluoroquinolones and sulfa straight up are either intermediate, but everyone I've ever seen has been really resistant. Clofazamine is a drug that that we're using more and more in these groups. Uh, Lincosides like linazolid are used. Um, Tigecycline, which I use often, unless it's a bloodstream infection, um, and even I've even seen um, you know some you know some individuals using bedaquiline as well, which is a new TB drug. Um, I've already talked about the duration, uh, but surgical intervention is really key. And it, excuse me, and in some circumstances, segmentectomy or lobectomy is really what you need. So what are the research implications? Well, before we go into that, any questions? So what are the research implications? So, um, you know, I kind of have a three-pronged approach right now for this. Epidemiologic studies here in in Central Florida um, pharmacotherapeutic studies, which I'm doing in conjunction with some, you know, some uh, faculty at UF Lake Nona in Orlando, and also some immunologic studies, which um, I'd like to get off the ground eventually. Um, and the immunologic um, studies kind of revolve around the following questions. Is there an innate T cell issue, um, an adaptive T cell immunity issue, and is there a T cell exhaustion, which is, you know, we see a lot in cancer therapy, uh, some, you know, blocking off some markers, but um, it could be important in some of these chronic infections like mycobacterium sessages. So epidemiology. Um, so we talked about Becky Prevos's study, uh, but there was another study out of Miami in 2018 um, that showed that um, they had 108 patients. Most were pulmonary infections. Um, there was more of a female to male predominant, even though it was equal. There were, you know, most of the studies have shown that more women get this than men that are in um, uh, th- that don't have an intrinsic pulmonary problem. Uh, but they had a, almost 16% inpatient mortality, which I found interesting. Uh, sensitivity broadly was to clorithromycin, amikacin, and Um Resistant, like I said, to sulfa and fluoroquinolones, they found that as well. Um, most of the patients who died had you know, disseminated infection, a prosthetic device. They either had acute kidney injury, solid organ transplant. They were, had immune suppression medications. They had macrolide resistance, which is which is doom. And uh, of course, this could go along with other things, but IVM and case administration. So we have a study that was that was complete, and we're trying to publish the paper now um, with my good friend uh, Jamie Morano and um, some folks down at Tampa General, um, who've been who've been really helpful with this. And so it was a joint effort um, through USF. Of course, when I was at UF, um, Tampa General, some people here at the VA and we're gonna do this at the VA as well, um, and also the Department of Health. And so uh, we looked at all positive cultures, both pulmonary and tegumental um, uh, infections for all NTMs. Um, And interestingly enough, mycobacterium sessis was the number one um, infectious agent um, in this. Um, And we got susceptibilities and we have some of that data. I'll wait for you to get the publication, hopefully it comes out eventually. Um, But we looked at documenting some of the predisposing health factors, whether that be an immunocompromising condition, pulmonary disease, HIV. But we also interestingly did some geographic locations and did a GSF, GIS map. And this kind of told us where, you know, where some of these infections could be. Did people live around certain water sources? That was part of our hypothesis. And this gave us a large catchment of ca- of cases. So we're going to do this. So that should be coming out shortly. And um, um, we're going to do a similar study. One of the fellows, Dr. Uh, t- um, Zahina Cornelius is going to help me do it at the VA. So let's briefly talk about therapeutics. Um, so this is, uh, again, it's, it's a real problem, right? Because uh, one of the major problems is that it's, it's well, there's several, but the main problem is, is that patients really cannot tolerate these drugs. Um, and usually there's three or more drugs, and there's at least one to two parenteral drugs. And so this, this really impacts people's lives. And they usually have to be on these drugs, like I said, for for you know four, six, twelve, or more months. So I did a study with the people at UF like Nona, um, including George Drusano, who leads the group over there. Um, and we looked at several different, this was a quality improvement study. So we looked at um, several different um, um, isolates of obsessus that i that that I had collected uh, with different resistance markers. And, um, and looked at their, uh, you know, sensitivity profile in total. And these are the results here. And you can see that um, for the most part, um, you know, a lot of them, you know, half of them were wild type and did not have a lot of resistance factors. Only one had macrolide resistance outright, which is indicative of the RRL positive. I aminoglycoside mean, resistance phenotype or a discordance, and you can see that in, in the lavender. Orange showed fluoroquinolone resistance, and then we used one green, which um, the one in green was used in our linazolid study, which had an MIC of 16, which is on the cusp um, um, of being um, uh, resistant. So how do we do it? We use something called a hollow fiber model, and George and, and Arnold Louis, group over there at UF, like none no, of they invented this, and this is a super cool uh, way to study. So what they do is, is that the organism is basically in this cartridge, and there's um, you know media that's continuously going in and out of this, um, and is pumped in and out, and the waste is is collected and eliminated. But there's a drug that's administered, and you can administer the drug on different schedules, whether that be um, you know a, a standard schedule, an extended. Uh, you know, release kind of schedule or continuous infusion. And so, I'm sorry, extended infusion and a continuous infusion. And this basically shows the organism can't leave. And you can see in real time what the concentration of drug is there as relative to the growth curves and and the regression of growth curves based on a log scale. And so what we did was we looked at linazolid doing this. And so we had different treatment arms. We wanted to see if you know, as it's known, you really shouldn't be treating mycobacteria um, with a single agent um, because the fact that there's numerous resistant uh, mechanisms as well as, um, you know, numerous ways for the organism to, whether it's in their smooth or rough phenotype, uh, to to not, you know, be able to process the drugs and the drugs become ineffective then, right, because they're in this non persistent phenotype. So, we had different control arms, I'm sorry, treatment arms. One control, one where we gave Linazolid 600 milligrams once a day, 300 twice a day, 600 once a day, which is the dose used in uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, by the way. 1,200 milligrams, uh, 24. And also, we did 600 milligrams continuous infusion, as well as 1,200 milligrams continuous infusion. Target inoculum was um, around 100,000 CFUs. But actually, it was close to about 5,000. Um, and of course, we used this Shan 6 strain, um, Mycobacterium obsessus subspecies obsessis. Um, and given the MIC of the linazolid, uh, we dosed it at 2 milligrams per milliliter. And the media we used was the standard um, uh, media used for mycobacteria. So, this is the data. Um, and this is the total population over a week. And the reason we stopped it after a week was because. <clears throat> after a week, everything become resistant. But if you notice, um, the 600 milligrams continuous infusion, I'm sorry, uh, 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 once a day rather, gave us the um, uh, this, uh, U, best uh, inverse, uh, in, inverse U plot, uh, which shows that you know there was the, the least amount of logs of CFUs of the organism that were around despite this. Um, however, just like everything else, um. After a week, the resistance clones were singled out, and they ended up growing out. However, if you notice, um, you know, wh- if you looked at lower doses um, or ones that were every twelve hours, really didn't help. And these, and um, and then eventually they all kind of joined the, um, the, the control group. Um, and at seven days, um, it didn't matter what drugs we were using. Uh, the, the resistance clones were there. So, what's the take-home message from this? So. You know, mycobacteria obsessives can be grown, of course, in hollow fiber system, which is a really cool thing, uh, which we already knew it's already been done for TB, but this is the first time it's been done. Um, and then if you notice here, there was an exponential growth. Um, notice this rapid resurgence of resistance, this hypermutator phenotype, which you can see in Pseudomonas aerogenosa and other organisms. Um, linazolid imposed some microbiologic effect, really, but again, the amplification arms affected um, you know, really didn't do much, and at the end were just as bad as the, as the non- non-treated control. So, um, there, and the emergence resistance was pretty high with monotherapy, which is confirmed. Uh, and so optimal combination of chemotherapy is really what we need, and George's group is going to start looking at that shortly. So what are the next steps? So, you know, is, do we want to do this on a broth, auger? is it better to do that? Um, and they're developing a murine model as well. Um, um, and then, you know, hollow fiber continue to do with that. And does the subspecies really matter? And I think that that's something that George, George's group is trying to do, and they're doing an R01 proposal for that now. So finally, let's talk about the immunology of, of mycobacterium synthesis. So less is known. There's studies out of South Korea and France uh, that, that have kind of gone into this, but, um, you know, we really don't know what's happening. Is, is it going from a commensal to a pathogen? And is there some kind of T cell imbalance balance or imbalance uh, that's occurring, that's allowing this to transpire? So Diane Ordway has, at Colorado State, has some murine models um, uh, with a knockout mouse for this, uh, demonstrating um, an interferon gamma, um, you know, deficient mouse. um, And she's published some things on this. However, we really haven't elucidated a mechanism. So if you remember when we discussed um, the pathophysiology, I wanted you to notice that there were some T cells that were not, uh, not really discussed um, there, but I think are really important in controlling the infection. So as a review for the fellows in innate immune system, you have macrophages, mast cells, natural killer cells, other types of granulocytes and dendritic cells, right? Um, and the adaptive immune system is really composed of lymphocytes, Um, uh, you know, including B cells, T cells, um, and T cells can be broken up into different T8 cells um, or, uh, uh, you know, cytotoxic T cells. Um, But there's also some in the middle that do both. Um, Whether they be mate T cells, gamma delta T cells, or natural killer T's, they could be important in controlling infections such as mycobacterium cessus. So we talk about a commensal to a pathogen. So well, what about the innate T-cells? Well, you know, we know that in, in, you know, in some infections, you know, these T-cells affect commensals, which you have, you know, in normal flora, um, and they prime the local immunity. So basically they're, uh, you know, um, they're sparring partners for these innate T-cells. And so the innate T-cells don't have these organisms that are normally in the respiratory tract around, Um, If that local microbiota is depleted or changes, then the the innate T cells aren't really primed. And this was demonstrated in a PLOS one paper from 2018. And then they became these, you know, these organisms like mycobacteria can become pathogens. Um, And so, again, this could be due to structural changes in the lung or immune depletion or other things. Um, But, you know, that's that's a hypothesis. The other thing that's interesting are looking at local versus systemic T cell exhaustion markers, like PD-1, which is you know there's some PD-1 inhibitors that are used in cancer therapy, TIM-3 and LAG-3, which are um, you know also in you know could be implicated. And then um, in malaria, there's a similar phenomenon with TIM-3, uh, where the idea kind of came and how you know the expression of 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 this um um of, of this gene. Ah, uh, gene product uh, on gamma T cells causes co-stimulation of, of of 12 and 18. And so, if there's exhaustion and these markers are there, then from there the organisms uh, really are not kept in check by these T cells. And so, this is from 2010, but it's kind of tells you what's going on. That you know, n- not natural killer T cells, not natural killer cells, but natural killer T cells are important in um, um, in clearing both. Uh, malaria parasites in the hepatocytes, and also in, um, um, you know, in the spleen and liver from, you know, um, the macros- macrophage lineage cells. Um, and the same thing also happens in HIV as well. And so, why couldn't this occur um, in other, um, you know, in other infections? So, in my study from 2017 that we did with one of my postdocs, Jason Lehman, who's who's now back in San Diego, we did this for malaria, and you can see that in patients who were asymptomatic versus symptomatic, um, that there are certain changes in certain cell types, whether that be, um, you know, uh, some regulatory T cells, which are indicative in the bottom right, in F, um, and general um, CD4 T cells, and also, and you know, these natural killer-like T cells as well. And so they can be primed, especially in gamma deltas, from doing different, from doing different things, whether that be an innate boost early on in the infection, Uh, an adaptive boost um, based on, you know, um, dendritic cells and other types of of, um, antigen-presenting cells, um, as well as some problems when there's damage to the epithelium, or, or, you know, in this case, um, and other types of of cytokines that are generated that activate these gamma-delta T cells and other types of innate T cells. And so this is, um, and I, I apologize for not putting... The um, uh, where this is from originally, uh, but this this cartoon kind of illustrates that, and that there are different mechanisms for clearing different pathogens that are imperative for these innate T cells. And you can see that's Klebsiella pneumoniae, uh, Chlamydophila or Chlamydia, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, um, you know, Streptococcus pneumoniae, and even um, B pertussis are all can all be help regulated um through an IL17 pathway from gamma delta T cells now gamma delta T cells and innate an T cells don't really work like regular T cells they don't really use proteins and peptides as a way to identify certain pathogens they usually do it by carbohydrates and com- you know car- complex carbohydrate, car- carbohydrates and lipids and so that's a different way of, of recognizing this and so it's imperative that in studies like this, that we not look at just the proteins, but also look at the other components of the organism. So IL-17 could be, could be really impactful in figuring out what's going on with creating, you know, a granuloma or controlling, and or controlling the infection. So the aims of future grants that I want to do is, is to have, look at the host response and looking at patient cohorts, getting, you know, uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells and eventually maybe even pulmonary cells. And look at the recall T-cell immune response, looking at whole cell lysate of the organism. And this will also include gamma delta T-cells, uh, natural killer T-cells, and, and and other things, right? So, um, and that'll be, we'll use flow cytometry and multiplex cytokine, chemokine uh, kind of studies um, using bead, bead assays. Um, and also, we'll also look at some of these um, you, you know some of these uh, apoptotic markers um, for for different cells like PD1, Tim3, and Lag3. Maybe even do some HLA typing. The other thing I might want to do is look at antigen detection. And so in 2017, um, there was a paper that kind of came out that looked at the 560 membrane-bound proteins um, in mycobacterial processes. And so George Blanc and I from USF actually collaborated and came up with um, a you know a list of of different Uh, proteins on the outer um, surface, and we want to look at adaptive T-cell markers for that. So, um, you know, this will be done with MHC1 and MHC2 design epitopes for alpha-beta T-cells and see what happens. If we have to use tetramers, probably it's the way to go, Um, but we'll see what happens. And again, using flow cytometry, multiplex chemokine and cytokines are really important. So, um, in closing, we'll kind of talk about some of these future ideas. So the immunology of abscesses: looking at, again, g- obtaining uh, mononuclear cells from the BAL of patients as well. So getting actually cells that are in the lung to look at abscesses. Um, and uh, this is also done in TB previously. To see what the recall response to the organism is. Um, and then uh, depletion of certain subsets of the gamma-del T cells. Looking at these populations and other NA T cells on the effect of polyfunctionality. Um, and then seeing if there's any, these depletions are important in the different subsets. And then what are their protective responses? How do we you know, looking at, at, the, at the study methods that I kind of showed there, is there a way to kind of capitalize on that and see what's really going on? And then finally looking at RNA-seq or mass spec uh, to some of these, you know, some of these binding partners some of these peptide sequences in alpha beta T cells and what they recognize versus healthy and infected, you know, donors, because again, why, again, why is it not an infection in patients who don't have one of those conditions I mentioned earlier, versus those who do? Um, And then again, finally looking at, this could be done with RNA-seq, looking at the transcriptional machinery, uh, to look at certain uh, regulation of precursors of, you know, interferon gamma, IL-17, maybe some of their precursors, like IL-22, and infection of certain Antigen-specific cells from these uh, mononuclear cells. So, what are the take-home points from this? I talked a lot about it's a lot of research. Um, you know, some some kind of updates with, with 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 guidelines. Even though I don't like guidelines from the American Thoracic Society, um, uh, but um, you know, abscessus is a rapidly growing mycobacteria with a high prevalence in Florida. We know that. We know that this is this is being documented slowly but surely, um, and even by our group here at USF. Uh, so again pulmonary integumental cases um, but again you see rarely disseminated cases but i can tell you that some patients that i've seen at moffitt and even a couple that i've diagnosed here at the va and previously at uf were done looked at disseminated and i got afb blood culture so if you have a patient who you're suspecting could have a mycobacterial infection get an afb blood culture there's a possibility that it could turn positive and we've captured some of these infections actually recently at at Moffitt um, um, and and are really trying to treat through some of these and some of these complicated patients. So there's different resistance mechanisms, as I mentioned, multiple combinations. Um, You know, my advice and people like Kevin Fennelly and Kevin Winthrop at OHSU and 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 Chuck Daly and those guys at National Jewish is not to really do monotherapy, um, even though it is done uh, because of the different resistance mechanisms that can occur. So I would just advise cautions with that. Um, but that PKPD studies are imperative. We need this so we can really lock down what are the really good therapeutics that we can use. Um, you know, I can tell you that there's even some, some, some hinting of using an oral carbapenem out there for this and other novel drugs that are being developed that, you know, I could be involved in, in the next, you know, in the next uh, uh, grant cycle. And then, of course, the immunological conundrum. So description of immune responses. We need to know what they are. Even though there are some data out there, it really doesn't help us. And so what are the innate T-cell roles? I really do think that that and the T-cell exhaustion is critical. You know, eventually a T-cell T-spot test like a, um, you know, like we have over TB or, um, or or an IGRA would be nice. I think that using an interferon gamma but also IL-17 ratio could be important. As I think that IL-17, um, you know, uh, a reduction of IL-17 production is, is, is a poor marker for how well, you know, for how patients will do moving forward. So, I have a lot of acknowledgments, people at UF and that work with me or for me or have mentored me over the past. Um, people here, uh, as you can see, there are Jamie and, and you know, Doug Holt and Biata and, you know, Jose and, and of course, um, you know, John Tony and, and everybody else there. I don't know why I have Jose there twice. Uh, you know, Kami and Sandy and, of course, Joe Lazama, who brought me here, um, who I've known for many, many, many years.